short-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, the government love, the government love, the government love, the government the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Max Borders, the founder and executive director of Social Evolution, a nonprofit organization dedicated to liberating humanity through innovation. Max is also the co-founder of the Future Frontiers Conference and Festival. He's the author of a number of books, including The Decentralist, The Social Singularity, After Collapse, and his most recent book, Underthrow. How Jefferson's Dangerous Idea Will Spark a New Revolution, which we'll be talking about today. Max Borders, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start with, well, the very beginning, and that, of course, is the title of your book, Underthrow. What is it? Sure. Well, if you think about the French Revolution, for example, that was overthrow. Whereas if you think about Gandhi uh, ending the British Raj, that's underthrow. So underthrow is the is more like the sum of peaceful human choices against unjust authority. And today I think underthrow can be carried out in part at least through technological means. But we can talk about that more in a minute. Okay. And so it's it's revolutionary but not in the I I think the problem right with the word revolution is people oftentimes have a connotation of violence and that sort of thing and it seems to me like underthrow is a way of getting at that with taking away that negative connotation. That's right. That's absolutely right. I, I, um, I am not a pacifist, but certainly I think that nonviolence is uh, the best and most durable approach uh, often, and certainly one that allows people to uh, engage peacefully in social change. And that's no matter where you sit on the ideological spectrum, that's important, at least in my mind. Yeah, I'd like to say like to think at least that most listeners probably agree that blood in the streets is nothing that we necessarily want. So that's a good place to start, I think. Um, How does Thomas Jefferson fit into all of this? Well, Jefferson had this great idea, um, and we've probably all heard it before, but maybe forgotten it. And he wrote it in the Declaration of Independence. And he says, he says, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. So this is Jefferson's dangerous idea, which in many respects we have lost, or at least we don't incorporate it into foundational law. And I just kind of don't accept that majoritarian rule is consent. That's an that's an interesting idea, I think, because uh, there's it reminds me of this concept you talk about this later on in the book called uh, I believe it's uh, Irish democracy, right? I, I mean, we certainly have an active political sphere, but it certainly also seems like there are an awful lot of people who are more not so much consenting, but sort of disgruntledly resigned, I guess, if you will, uh, to, <laughs> to what we have going on. That's right. That's right. I think you'll I think there's a a species of of activism that is just digging in your heels and digging in one's heels, even if that's sort of the last available tool to resist, let's say, some sort of authoritarian power, no matter where it comes from, people will do that. And the the old uh, the Irish democracy term, I guess, comes from the way the Irish dealt with the the imperial rule of of Britain back in in the past, but um, but but the overall concept is just we're going to be we're going to dig in our heels and we're going to sort of refuse to comply quietly and en masse. Now the structure of your book is essentially of, well you have three sections and uh, I love alliteration so I love the section titles absurdities alternatives and actions and. Uh, Let's start with the absurdities. And when, when looking through that section, I, I thought it was really interesting what you said about or your theories about what you call the church of state. And can, can you talk a little bit about that concept? Yeah, I mean, I just want to put out there that I'm, I'm an unbeliever. OK, so I, I'm not I'm not a religious person, um, really. And I won't even say that I'm um, I'm, I'm but I'm spiritual. Um, I guess I, you could say that. But. But I think that can be a silly cliche. 
But as an <laughs> but as an unbeliever, I still think that there are three big holes left behind as people have sort of abandoned their faith traditions. And those big three are moral practice, with emphasis on practice, community, and mutual aid. So I think too many people on both the left and right have adopted a replacement religion of sorts, which is the church of politics or the church of state. Um, either way, um, I, I, I find both formulations work, uh, emphasize, each emphasizing certain things. But briefly, the church of state obliges people to sort of out, outsource their responsibilities or their sacred values to, to people in distant capitals. And so this form of worship, at least by my lights, helps, uh, well, it certainly, I think objectively, it helps centralize power and concentrates authority that really ought to be local. And in this church of state, you, you expand on the concept and talk about articles of faith that, that sort of the, uh, uh, the practitioners or congregants, what have you, uh, adhere to. And yeah, I was hoping you could talk uh, about those as well, and well, as well as how these articles of faith interact or intersect, I guess, with what you call the big three problems that we face. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it, let me see if I can pull this from sort of the recesses of my memory, <laughs> um, <laughs> but because uh, it makes an interesting matrix the way you, yeah. the the way I've crossed these. Um, well, interesting to some, hopefully. But the, the let's let's talk about those uh, those articles of faith for the Church of State. It's I, the first, more or less, is the idea that prosperity is somehow immoral, which is to say that material abundance. People are very suspicious that this is somehow the product of sin. Right. Or a product product of some sort of moral turpitude. The second is that that our society should be designed. Um, and that means that some sort of elite should administratively order society. Um, if, if that makes sense. And we, we might call that technocracy or or the managerial state. And finally, that brute authority is necessary. And that and that just means that a few enlightened souls should be uh should impose a, like a single conception of the good on the rest of us who are more or less benighted a benighted population and so those three uh are 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 the 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 sort of core tenets i would i would identify in this in this church of politics now you did ask about how those cross and and um I'm going to I'm going to admit something here to you and your listeners in, in just a moment. But let's let's focus on the three big problems, which I should have identified as sort of the three big problems of the moment or of the era. OK, so insofar as these justify technocratic authority, the big three, uh, the big three problems currently are wealth inequality. The, uh, the idea that it's horrible or sinful somehow that that some should control more resources than others be the climate emergency. Um, entrepreneurship and energy consumption cause runaway warming or planetary emergency of some sort. Okay. We're all familiar with this. And finally, social justice. Um, and I might add critical social justice onto this because there are various conceptions of social justice, but the most, um, the, the one I'm concerned with is probably more accurately called critical social justice. And that's the idea that there is this kind of cosmic scoreboard of identity groups, which mean some groups are oppressors while others are oppressed. And this is sort of by default or sort of by uh, historical determinism. And the only way to rectify that uh, injustice is through certain means that one might worry are illiberal means. So when you you cross these articles of faith with the big three problems, you get this kind of matrix. OK, and I I try to actually present the matrix in the book, but it gives you this matrix of justifications for the rise of authoritarian authoritarianism or at least mild authoritarianism. Certainly not, you know, Hitler or or, um, you know, Italian fascism, but it is a form of, the, uh, of mild authoritarianism and it's certainly growing. And of course, this this managerial state concept. Now, this to me sounds like, a, well, at least has elements of what I consider a pretty standard 
critique of the progressive left by people on the right of, of, of all kinds, essentially. And so I, I wonder, is this just some sort of a veiled slam on the left or is this whole church of state thing? I mean, is it a, is it a is it at all a bipartisan thing, or at least do you find elements of this on the right as well, or is this mostly directed toward the progressive left? Well, sadly, I think that's the way the book reads. Uh, is that this? But given what I just what I just enumerated for you, this sounds like the big three. You know, given that these are the moment and are meant to justify the expansion of the man- managerial state, that this would be a le- left wing problem. But I really want to. I really want to clarify that this is absolute. The church of politics or the church of state is definitely a bipartisan absurdity. Um, And I will mention that the major tribes, you know, I want to say that our our major partisan tribes seem to be really decoupling from any coherent principles. Um, and, and, And there's been so many changes that, that it's, it's really hard to distinguish. And I think it's the introduction of populism that has made, made a lack of clarity around who goes where and in what tribe. And the tribes are based more on sort of in-group, out-group affiliations more than coherent principles. I mean, at least to less and less degree. Still, I want to, I wish I had taken more time to write about how the reactionary right can give rise to right-wing variants of this, the, the, the church of state. So, for example, I can see how MAGA, for example, creates its own big problems like invasion by foreigners, exporting our jobs or, you know, otherizing folks in the culture war. These are kind of things that, um, you know, we're seeing this reactionary since I wrote the book, you know, you're seeing this sort of reactionary uh, element from the right that is doing just as just what I was accusing um the more the left of doing with these big three problems. So I do want to admit that I understate the reactionary aspects of this in the book. And I wish I had done more to, to, I guess, practice both sidesism, you might say. You know, it, it seems to me that I, at least in reading the book that you're, you're not suggesting, and listeners might take this, and I think it would be inaccurate. You're not suggesting that these big three problems aren't three big problems, but it seems to me more that you're suggesting that a certain approach that's kind of centralized, uh, merit, meritocratic kind of, th- that maybe is not the best way to deal with these and other problems as well, if you want that kind of legitimacy and, and buy-in from the general public. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's right on, that's right on it. And in fact, I would also, I would add to that. It's not just that it's about getting buy-in. It's also about the means um, by which uh, yeah, it's the mean it's 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 about getting buy in, which is sort of like inviting people into your understanding. But it's also, you know, uh, these these more authoritarian means or this this managerial state, which uses various what I would call illiberal means to to try to get people to either acquiesce or comply. And that's the dangerous part, especially in a oddly set. It's it's may sound strange to say, but in a democracy where you have this tendency for left and right, uh, in our system at least, the red app and the blue app, to be installed, uh, you know, every four years or every eight years, you're, you're essentially creating the means by which your, your partisan enemies can take over and sort of do the same to you. So I just don't like these means to begin with. Um, I think they're highly illiberal, which means that they are an affront to our our core ideas of of freedom and self organization, and that's not to say that these aren't problems, and it's also not to say that they shouldn't be solved. But um, this sort of this sort of idea that by dint of largesse and coercion, we're going to solve all the world's problems is sort of default thinking in the church of state, and I want to disabuse people of that idea. When I was thinking about this concept of the church of state. And I love that concept. I agree so much with you about the decline of religion and how politics for many people have sort of filled that role to a certain extent. It also occurred to me as a person of sort of the center left that 
uh, there's a term market fundamentalism, and it's kind of has a religious connotation in a way. And because a lot of us on the left feel like there's also, in addition to this, this church of state, there's sort of a church of commerce, right? Where the market will fix everything and make everything wonderful. And, and you know, in the book, at one point you suggest that it's better, for, it's better for people to relate to each other as customers as opposed to relating to each other as citizens. And boy, that set off like eight or nine different alarm bells in my head. And so I wanted to talk <laughs> to you about that. So can you continue to give no, that? It's, it's, it's a really good point. And I, and I, I, I expect, you know, every sentence is an experiment. Um, and I knew I'd raise some eyebrows with that, <laughs> yeah. with that trope. So I hope um, I hope folks will will dive into the book a little more. Um, but you're you're not wrong to have gotten that impression. And while I don't consider myself a free market fundamentalist um, for reasons that we can go over in, in a moment, um, I do want to you know be sure that people the, the, that the powerful who have the ability to you know interfere with the economy don't in 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 an effort to deny market fundamentalism. Don't deny market fundamentalists, market fundamentals. That is to say, you know, the things that the, the perverse effects that can follow when you try to intervene or uh, inter, inter, interfere with uh, economic processes. But that's really um, that's really a conversation for another day, probably one that would I'd love to have. But I, I want to talk about this idea of citizens as customers. Um it's it seems kind of gauche, I guess you could say at first at, at first blush. My view is not so much that we ought to worship in the church of commerce, so much as that we should worship in the church of choice. So I use the customer trope to evoke two important ideas that perhaps will be resonant with people like yourself who are on the center left. Uh, John Stuart Mill's idea of experiments and living, first of all. So that's a that's. That's real pluralism, real diversity. Uh, the idea that we each of us has different conceptions of the good life, and we want to try out different ways of living with each other. Now, that's not going to be some universal doctrine. So we know that there's a fact that people are different one to the next. And so the kind of experiments in living that we want to pursue, uh, some together and some apart, are going to be a reality that we, that we call pluralism. So I sort of distinguish between a positive and normative pluralism in this. And this experiments and living idea is the is the idea that we should be able to try out different ways of living locally, not not catastrophically or universally have those be imposed. Um, and the second is the common sense idea that monopolies are bad. OK, which is, a con you know, an idea that is pretty much from orthodox economics. It's not to say there is always and in every case happens, but generally speaking, monopolies are, are bad. So the experiments in living um, idea implies that rules facilitate one's choice of community or civil association um, also can comport with her ideas of the good life. OK, and then the monopolies are bad implies governments are monopolies, too, and they can, you know, restrict choices, raise prices, lower quality and generally limit that experimentation of, of the first point of, the, of John Stuart Mill's idea. And therefore, when in limiting experimentation, you have just as many problems with this great public monopoly as you do private monopolies. That's, that's the, the two ideas I really want to pull out of this idea that if you, you know, to, to grant you the, the, the trope, the church of choice, not so much the cho choice of commerce, although that can be an element of it, the, these commercial relationships, but more of this idea of the church of choice, that it'd be easier to exit a system that isn't working for you and enter one that does work for you. Right. And, and this, of course, would run very much counter to that fundamentalist mindset where if you allow someone easy exit and experiments in living, you're, you're essentially letting them, uh, making it easier for them to move away from the one true faith, whatever that happens to be, whether it's religious or political. And, and so as a, as a fundamentalist of any stripe, you would be extraordinarily opposed to that, just like I would argue that cultural fundamentalists are very, they hear the phrase experiments in living, go, oh my God, we can't have experiments <laughs> in living. That's crazy talk, right? 
That's right. And it's like, well, go tell someone who lives in a kibbutz, right? And who shares resources. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this, some MAGA guy driving, driving himself crazy over this notion that people might want to live in different kinds of communities and governance structures. It's like, hey, you know, look, people do this all the time. You know, the Mennonites have been doing it for hundreds of years. The Amish, they live in communal, uh, communal relationships and are devoutly religious. So they're, Almost like a strange hybrid between religious fundamentalism and socialist fundamentalism, say. But they work and they they like their lives in many cases. Some Amish uh, leave leave the you know their state of affairs, but in great measure they've been able to persist for you know hundreds of years, and I don't see them going away anytime soon. So it's. Whatever you can imagine as an experiment in living, it's it's really about offering people more of the latitude to try those experiments out. And that's how we're going to avoid partisan warfare with each other or ideological warfare of some stripe. I also wanted to ask you about this idea of luxury beliefs. It's really kind of a, a, a neat turn of phrase. Uh, in the book, you argue that Elites used to kind of distinguish themselves from the rest of us. I'm not an elite, so I won't speak for you. But anyway, through right conspicuous consumption, luxury goods, Veblen, all that. But now it's not that they don't still do that, but now they supplement this by adopting these luxury beliefs and then other people who sort of aspire to elite them. Hey, if you can't afford a, 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 a Rolex yacht master, you can still maybe afford a luxury belief, I guess. And so can, can you talk a little bit about this idea of luxury beliefs and, and why we should be maybe concerned about them? Sure. And I, I want to credit this fellow, the social psychologist, Rob Henderson, who presented this idea. And I, I think it's an outgrowth in many respects of, of other, of, of, um, what is it called? Rational irrationality, but I'll, I can get back to that in a moment. Um, but Rob Henderson gave us this idea of luxury beliefs. And these are, these are sort of like, uh, these are opinions that people can hold and do hold. And they, they tend to be unreflective opinions. Okay. And they confer status on the rich and educated. By if you hold these beliefs, because, you know, um, you might have heard the term virtue signaling, which um, which is a, now become something like, oh, oh, you know, disparaging to say about someone. Oh, they're signaling their virtue. But it is a form of virtue signaling. It's, it's especially among the rich and educated who imagine that they can um, comply with whatever policy or proposal or, or bumper sticker notion that they put out there to signal their their rectitude or their their virtue but it's actually quite um it's actually quite difficult for implications for the poorest among us okay so it's it's thinking about ideas that you you want to believe in without thinking about how those those measures can harm the least fortunate among us so let me give you some examples um like um think about nimbies okay like uh, sort of rich, you know, rich, well-educated people in San Francisco, San Francisco, who are pushing back against construction of new housing that would alter the character of our fair city, say. OK, now, if you don't build in a, an expensive place like San Francisco, which, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, is bounded on three sides by water, you're going to make it really difficult for poor and even middle class to live in that that city. So. That's a that's a, a longstanding example, I think, of a luxury good is sort of like, yeah, to hell with uh, the poor people. Um, we're, we have to protect my, our view of the bay or the character of our city or what have you. And that that really creates problems because, you know, housing stock, like any other good, um, it sits within the law of supply and demand. And I don't want to sound like a market fundamentalist, but I think I think, you know, reasonable people should be able to agree about um, about scarcity. Uh, another might be there were some climate activists the other day, young people who I, I want to say I heard on on the radio. They 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 glued their feet to the floor and, and screamed that they wanted to end fossil fuels now. OK, so, OK, I can understand you have concerns about a planetary emergency that comes from climate change. That's one of the, the three big problems we identified. 
But you have to consider what the effects of actually ending fossil fuels now would have against the uh, uh, would would do to the world's poorest people. And I would argue that if we really look at it, it would devastate them. You know, if you know, in the rich West, we might have we might be able to trundle along for a while on, um, you know, on uh, electric cars or what have you. You know, Pete Buttigieg, I think, was one during during the um, during the time of high gas prices early on in the Biden administration. He sort of told people to go out and buy electric cars. Well, the cheapest electric car is thirty thousand dollars. It's it's not affordable for most poor people. So this is the kind of luxury belief idea that that can sort of an elite can sort of miss because they have a blind spot about the way the poor people, the way that poor people live and their needs. And of course, there are trade offs, um, always trade offs that we have to look at. And this is another sort of market fundamentalist idea. We always have to look at trade offs. Life is about trade offs. And we always have to to look at them squarely before we make a claim like in fossil fuels now it's just it's um it's like if if we want to think about a meaningful transition away from fossil fuels that that allowed allows poor people to eventually transition without uh, making them worse off that that's that's a conversation worth having but just just a bumper sticker to end fossil fuels now is not not a a great idea so there's a couple of um those are a couple of left wing examples, but let me give you some right wing ones too, so we don't we don't seem like I'm I'm picking a team because I really don't want to. I mean, the whole idea of this is is that we have these experiments in living, and they might be right wing or left wing variants. But the um, a right wing version might be something like, you know, prison is the answer to every social problem. Right? We just need to throw them in jail. Okay, that's kind of a right wing knee jerk response sometimes. And whether it's, you know, drug policy or um, or, um, you know, a failure to pay a traffic ticket, that that that's not that's not a very helpful solution is to threaten people with prison for everything. So um, neither is, for that matter, uh, thinking of uh, like just like in fossil fuels now, severe tariffs or trade restrictions against China. right now okay might have a perverse effect on people poor people in both countries you know the chinese are people too and chinese uh the chinese poor are dependent in some sense on exports that is export led growth is chinese policy and we import their cheap cheaper goods because they have cheaper labor that is certainly the case um but our our poor at least in the immediate term benefit from those cheap being able to access those cheaper goods now that's not to say that there might not be some some policy that would implement trade restrictions in the long term because there are concerns about china using our um our trade imbalance to grow their military might and and you know become a more imperial power in the east but we have to think about the trade-offs again. And and so the general idea is luxury people who hold luxury beliefs just don't think about trade-offs, especially those that are going to affect the poor in negative ways. So, so it's essentially, uh, we're talking about unreflective bumper sticker philosophy on, on both sides or any side, really. Sometimes, but it's really, it's really one. And I, I dare I say, um, the belief you'd hold from a position of privilege where you might be able to eat the compliance costs, but a poor person wouldn't. Now, I think a lot of people just feel like, well, you know, we've we've got the system we have. And so we have the the screaming fundamentalists of the right and the screaming fundamentalists of the left, you know, battling it out with their with their luxury beliefs and their uh, unwillingness to really talk to each other just we will we will get into power and ram our agenda down your throats and well we'll do the same thing when we get into power and and that's just kind of how it works it seems like to a lot of folks and uh, but you obviously don't believe this is the way things have to be and so I wanted to talk uh, about something a little more maybe uh, optimistic and encouraging, some plausible alternatives here, uh, because I want to get into how you think we might be able to somehow alternatively 
structure things in a way that would be less awful than what we have now. Well, that that is a a fantastic framing, and I really appreciate that framing. It's I think it's it's quite beautiful the way you put it. Um, it 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 meant you managed to be diagnostic there and and sort of revealing the absurdities of the system we have where we well there are there are lots of problems i think first the sort of partisan warfare um creates this system of you have two two choices red and blue and at any given time one the red or the blue is going to hold sway and sort of force their policies and a platform down everyone else's throat and for four years until the next election cycle you know we just kind of this the we of some other camp just have to tolerate it. And that's assuming that you accept this dichotomy of red and blue. Um, so I think if we look carefully at the way our system is currently constituted, we'll discover all sorts of absurdities like this. I like to say we cry our teardrop in the ocean every two years or four years, and we expect the tide to turn. Partisan politics sort of engenders this either or thinking too and that really stifles the kind of reform that i'm talking about when i refer to meta politics so meta politics if you'll forgive the term requires that we evaluate status quo dynamics and imagine how society might be config reconfigured to help people realize a polycentric order okay and so that experiments and living idea that i was sort of alluding to earlier is is a, a found, the the fancy term is polycentric order. So that is one instantiates then more yes and thinking. If you if you engage in meta politics, you think in terms of yes and rather than either or. Some call that integral thinking. Okay. So to a partisan, a, a vision that vision probably looks like a way that we can have. Uh, eat our cake and have it too, or have our cake and eat it too. Instead, I want to say it's more a vision of how we apply rules that facilitate civil self-organization. Okay, uh, and and I think this this facilitating civil self-organization is exactly what the founders intended when they talked about self-government. So, although meta politics sounds highfalutin and people beat this term meta to death these days. Um, it can be, and it can certainly be highfalutin, but it boils down to Jefferson's dangerous idea in practice, the consent of the governed only at scale. So imperfect but better examples of this might include Switzerland. Switzerland has a, a federal system, which is to say a large federal government, but the federal government is not more powerful than each canton. There's a, there's a healthy balance there. And the cantons are different from one to the next in their their internal governance and and their taxation and redistribution and what have you um, sort of balance against this more modest federal government. And so you get people self-organizing into cantons based on their various conceptions of the good, however they may differ. And I think we can extend that kind of thinking to establish a more peaceful, pluralistic society. So it sounds like you're talking about, in a sense, the sort of federalism that we maybe had in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, basically, and, and maybe more of the type of structure that the framers envisioned. And then, of course, in modern days, for better or worse, worse both the left and the right are very much appeal to or, or want to appeal to national solutions and by solution i mean let's just ram our solution down everyone's throat as opposed to working in say 50 state legislatures or or hundreds or thousands of of uh sub state governments is that is that more or less right yeah that's why um i don't i don't consider these ideas all that crazy. A lot of people do. I'll, I'll, I will say. I mean, there are some there are some challenging elements to some of the things that I, I propose. But one of the basic proposals that we just is that we just hew to the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, for example, which are, have essentially been rendered. Yeah, it's crazy a, talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like um, 
even just justice i think it was brandeis who was a it was a left progressive in the early 20th century i talked about laboratories of experimentation and that is really a beautiful evocation of the idea that i'm talking about so it's not it's it is an original sort of now, the Catholics call it a principle of subsidiarity, and I think that better captures what I'm talking about, which is all decisions should be made at the most local feasible level. And you can, you know, duke it out in court on the question of feasibility. But otherwise, the, that love, that most local feasible level is determined by the people in in local circumstances. They know how to solve their problems better than they do because they're more far more acquainted, acquainted with the, the circumstances of their time and their place. But I also think it's uh, – I'll sort of go back against what I just said because I think it's more than just that because there's this danger, I feel like, of saying, well, okay, the answer is you know, r- r- give some meaning to the Ninth and Tenth Amendment federalism. You can take – you could do that and take the same blue versus red battles and just – multiply them on a lower level and that doesn't necessarily solve the problem right and, and so you're talking about more than just that it seems to me in, in i mean you mentioned you you mentioned religious sects right like the the Amish and the Quakers and so forth and so that to me i i've always been sort of fascinated by uh anarchism and it has a bad name right but it doesn't mean what people necessarily think it means and i got got to say i sense sort of a uh, at least sort of a semi anarchist vibe in in what you were saying i mean that in a positive sense and so i was hoping you could talk a little bit about how we may be break out of this idea of well let's just focus on the state level because you it seems to me you're arguing more than just that I, 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 I'll cop to that. I love, I love left anarchists and right anarchists. If you want to use that, that duality to sort of identify these schools. Um, I am really influenced by both left and right anarchists. And I, and I want to, I want to acknowledge that the, the, the way I refer to myself, if, if you, you know, you really pressed me, it's like, Max, put, put a label on yourself. It would be asymptotic anarchist okay Okay, i love it Um, (laughs) okay so the idea there is that anarchists uh, anarchists tend their north star is is limiting or eliminating the coercion of one person over one person or group over another person or group okay they don't like the idea this idea of compulsion now the left strains of this worry about the compul- the compulsion of say you know corporations as corporations um the those who hold capital tend to accrete power and subordinate people into into these hierarchies that are not all always great for the little guy right and the and the the right wing anarchists are you know sort of concerned in very many respects about the way that um, government monopoly, government monopolies, sort of as I said earlier, are, tend to be oppressive or or otherwise unhealthy against the you know against the little people. Where I say little people are just people who who lack that power. So I I want to think about it in how you eliminate all of this compulsion in society. Because it has all of these prefer, perverse, unintended consequences. But moreover, real people have to live in, in these regimes. So my question is always, and this is the asymptotic part. An asymptote is a mathematical, and by the way, I'm not a mathematician. But an asymptote is this idea that a curve uh, approaches an axis or a line and never actually gets there. It always gets closer and closer. So the idea is we may never be able to eliminate compulsion or coercion of one person over another, but we might be able to get closer and closer. And we can do that in, in, in more left-wing ways because left-wing people tend to value um, being compassionate. We can, we can engage more in mutual aid arrangements. And on the right, we can engage in more entrepreneurial ventures. And both of these things are interesting ways forward towards this anarchy, as you might put it, but as an asymptote. Maybe we'll never get there. And where we land as a pragmatic middle ground is what I call panarchy, or I don't call panarchy. 
um, I call it panarchy, but the, the guy who came up with the ideas is a Belgian liberal named Dupuis. Dupuis thought that um, we could essentially opt into these civil associations rather than rather than vote for parties who were going to prevail and then impose their conception of the good onto everybody else for four years. They imagined that people would join these civil associations. And, you know, the Ninth and Tenth Amendment is a way to give us some variety, for example, for these civil associations, but they're not very good. They're not very granular. So I just want to extend that logic further um, to at least a subsidiarity rule, if not outright panarchy. Panarchy being a way where you might want to restrict certain things about people or have a big redistribution plan as part of your group, but that you don't impose that on, you know, 330 million other people. I want to talk a little bit about some plausible critiques of this. Uh, I mean, I think for most people, I'm sure for most listeners, that the idea of choice and limiting oppression, and those are those are good things. They sound very positive. But then I think in terms of, well, if those same people ask, well, do you think that uh, your your kids, if you're a parent, just you should let them have free choice and and not oppress them? I say, well, no, they 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 would they would do all kinds of crazy things, whatever, run with scissors, I don't know, drink, smoke, do crazy stuff. And we don't want that. And and I think that maybe gets to a problem that I sometimes have both with libertarians and, and anarchists, both both of whom I, I, I love. I can't say I have a lot of anarchist friends, but I have some libertarian friends and it seems to me there's this assumption because most people I think who are drawn to these ideas tend to be very intelligent, rational, oftentimes privileged folks. And there's almost this assumption that, well, if we allow people to make choices, they will over time largely make good choices and everything will work out for the best. But there's this other kind of more traditionalist conservative line of thinking that says, my God, no, that's that's horrible. If you do this, people are going to just wander around lost and clueless and do all kinds of awful things, which is why these people need guidance, at least most people. And And so I guess my question here, there is a question here is, it gets down to human nature, I think, a view of human rationality, if you will. And so I wonder how you square your this this idea with maybe a somewhat less uh, charitable view, if you will, of human rationality that someone like, I don't know, maybe I, I might have. Sure. I think that's a that's a extremely well put. And it's you're not wrong. You're absolutely. In fact, I. I dare say I agree with you to to um, a, a degree anyway. So well, first, let's talk about the sort of libertarian idea. I mean, there's no doubt I've been branded with the Scarlet L before. And to some degree, I've probably earned it. But I don't consider myself an orthodox libertarian. So I just want to get that out of the way. Um, sometimes that doctrine can include these rigid ideological checkboxes and, and that narrow view of human nature that you're unpacking. Um, I certainly don't think we are, for example, these Benthamite rationality bots who run around right. maximizing utility or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Right. Um, or that people are always good at making decisions for themselves. I, 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 I think we're both cognitively stratified in society. And this means that certain people are better at making good decisions for themselves than others. Now, whether and to what extent that justifies pluralism, that's where I pull back. So, I mean, we just talked about luxury beliefs, right? And it's really elites who hold these luxury beliefs, even if they're, as you would put it, maybe irrational. Um, I think most people, no matter how smart or rich or or high, what high office they have, are plagued by rational irrationality, rational ignorance, or just straight up magical thinking. So um, I kind of I don't I guess where I come down on these these matters is I don't think there's there's a special ruling class capable of making rational decisions on everyone else's behalf either. Um, the world is just too warty and complex for that. And so is human nature. Human beings from the simplest laborers to the educated elites carry evolutionary baggage. We're all just cave people with computers. 
And smart people are just better at rationalizing their feelings and their grunts. But this really isn't a libertarian problem. It's a human problem. So, you know, if um, if I'm talking to someone on the center left, such as yourself, and, you know, they say we, we you know, we got We've got to help people. And it's like, OK, do you really believe that by dispersing largesse as if by algorithm on people from afar, that that's not going to have um, unintended consequences that are negative? And 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 then I invite them into sort of the and here it is again, the left anarchist perspective of mutual aid, where where if we are going to to actually help people make better decisions, that that something like assistance should 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 at least be at the level of community so that we can look people in the eye. Maybe the best thing for someone is not more resources maybe it's better advice or put down the bottle or you know put down the crack pipe whatever whatever the social problem is um let's help them by getting them into um drug recovery let's help them by but these are things that are highly localized ways of addressing problems and really are about the 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 invisible threads that tie us together as communities that's impossible from this sort of great top down of Washington, D.C. Um, so that's kind of why I'm skeptical of central authorities, because I think of all people are ignorant and irrational. There are just no angelic beings to whom we can all we can outsource our, our cares. I'll, I'll, I'll say something slightly embarrassing. My redneck father used to say, son, sometimes you just got to have to shit and fall back in it. And that's how you learn. That's how you learn. Um, and there's wisdom in that. The, so the protocols I envision let people do just that locally. So failures aren't catastrophic system wide or, or papered over by debt spending. And once tested, we can borrow the best ideas from each other. I, I could hear some people or I could envision some people hearing this and think, you know, we we tried small scale local help through whatever churches and civic organizations and all that. But in the end, as society got bigger and more complex and more intertwined, it turned out that these organizations were simply not equipped to handle the sort of problems that come with modern industrial and post-industrial society and that there are very real issues with resources and coordination and this sort of thing. And so therefore, while this seems like a good idea for maybe a, a, a small, relatively concentrated society or group in the context of the United States, this vast sprawling society, it just could never work. And, and obviously you don't think that, but, but I was hoping you could maybe talk about why you think this is, uh, why you think it isn't sort of a, a crazy idea. Well, I, I, I guess it's pretty simple. I don't think it's crazy. Let's I mean, if we just take the, the human welfare example um, at the turn of the century, one in three um, men, because, you know, this this was a time definitely of patriarchy. So at the turn of the 20th century, one in three men was a member. And men, of course, are the pri primary breadwinners at this time. There was a more distinct sexual division of labor before women came into the to the, to the workforce. So one in three men were, was a member of a mutual aid society, and um, that was something going all the way back to de Tocqueville that de Tocqueville noticed is like, wow, these people join organizations. If there is a social problem, they spin up an organization to attack it, and that's really how you address things locally. The, the problem I see is we can say, well, that didn't work, but then we got um, – you know, after that, we had the Great Depression, and then we had the New Deal, and then we had the war, and then we had, and this is the United States, so if you have international leaders, forgive me for our navel-gazing American focus, but uh, then we had uh, the Great Society initiatives. And before the Great Society initiatives, about 15% of people lived below the poverty line. And since 1960, what is it, three, four, when the Great Society initiatives were rolled out, we still have about 15% of the population living below the poverty line. Now, we can argue that the poverty measures have been changed and this and that, 
But at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like this system is working either. And all I'm proposing, and I don't think it's that crazy to say, is let's try different things to address poverty. And in a digital age, with a lot more resources that we had in the past, maybe, you know, a a condition of more localized welfare state uh, creation, you know, we can imagine 2 million people coming together out of 333 million people, 330 million people. We can imagine 2 million of them coming together to, to redistribute um, 50% of everyone redistributes 50% of their wealth. Well, let's try that. That kind of resembles a welfare state um, uh, the size of Iceland. I think they're about 2 million people. They might even be less, but it's, it's not a crazy thing, thing to think that these different approaches, some of them might be little welfare states. Some of them might be mutual aid associations. Some of them might be sort of charity on steroids now that we are much richer than we were uh, those many years ago. I believe this is not just a renaissance in mutual aid, charity, and localism, but this can be um, a renaissance driven by more more and better technology, technological means, and um, simply living in a wealthier society. You know, it seems to me that there are at least two objections or two issues I can think of, two roadblocks, if you will, which means there are probably at least half a dozen. But uh, the two things that jump to mind are, Number one, this assumption that most people have that, well, the government will take care of it or this is the way to deal with these things. And of course, I mean, it's got to be part of the reason why you wrote this book to let people uh, in on the idea that, hey, it doesn't have to be that way. And that's great. But the second issue, and this is maybe even a bigger problem, is the state, uh, however you want to define it, is always jealous of its power, right? And its prerogatives. And so if you try to, uh, divest the state of some of this power and resources because running these parallel systems wouldn't make sense and we probably wouldn't have the resources to do that, then there's going to be a lot of resistance for people in the state, these people in positions of power. And so how do you see us maybe at least trying to work through that roadblock, if you see it as a roadblock, which I'm guessing you, you probably would? Oh, Absolutely. No, it's it's a huge problem for me. It's a huge problem for anyone with big ideas, um, including the founders, of course, because there was this guy, King George III, sitting over there making fun of all these Whiggish notions until, you know, basically the, the colonists were, were, you know, separatists and violence uh, followed. So so to be honest, it's pretty overwhelming because. You know, it, it, you know, if you want to think of it as an analogy, the the Leviathan power is on our shores. So, you know, that's a that's overwhelming in and of itself. The other piece of it is I resist big rationalistic schemes. So, you know, the idea that there might be some roadmap to to the situation that I'm espousing that 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 somehow is going to be gotten through political means, I'm I'm not so sure. So. Sometimes I sit with a bit of nihilism about all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like, all I can do is wait for this empire to fall and hope someone reads my books. And with debt at 130% of GDP, it might just happen. But I know the world has been shaped from time to time by pamphleteers like Tom Paine, Karl Marx. So the first thing I try to do is sketch the vision. But then I try to inspire subversive innovation. And this is really goes to your question. So here's a couple of examples. Um, First, an intrepid founder named this guy named Travis Kalanick challenged the taxi medallion cartels. He he did that by puncturing taboos around hitchhiking. And of course, we know Uber was born. Um, that is a that is a form of subversive innovation. You operate in a legal gray area to create something new and then invite massive constituencies to come on board. And Kalanick certainly did that with Uber. In another case, um, a person or group of cypherpunks got fed up with this corruptive regime of central banking. You know, it creates this cantillon club of, of unlimited debt spending and bailouts. And these usually all go to the rich, the financial sector. You know, so they create this, this crazy set of state of affairs, this great pyramid scheme. And, you know, when things go bad, they get bailouts, okay, from the taxpayers. 
so this guy named Satoshi Nakamoto, which is not, which is just a, a pseudonym, presented a vision of a digital peer-to-peer money with no boss and no single point of failure. And Bitcoin was born. So these are examples of how sub- subversive innovation, of subversive innovation. But these, this isn't like a, a prescription or a plan or a blueprint. It's an ethos. So what it, you know, whatever system the powerful want for us, subversive innovators just go out there and do their things. And, and I want to be clear here for, for listeners, because I can hear people, you mentioned, you mentioned crypto, cryptocurrency and, and Uber and people, I'm sure some people are saying, oh my God, those things have problems and the Bitcoin is, is all up and down. But that's not really your point, it seems to me. Right. Your point isn't that Bitcoin is the way that this is the roadmap, but it's that, like you said, it's that, that way of thinking that getting people out of that sort of dichotomy or that rut of seeing things as we can only approach it this way and and having a thousand, a million experiments and then uh, innovating based on those and adjusting based on uh, on that. And if, if it sounds like I'm getting very enthusiastic about it, I really believe in this sort of thing myself. And so I find myself at, at the end of your book and at the end of this conversation filled with this weird combination of excited optimism and a certain amount of nihilism as, as well. And I don't know, I don't know if that's a great place to end, but, but I get, I get you. I think you know what I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I'm a, um, I'm an idealist and, and to some degree an ideologue. And I admit that. Um, and as, as it happens, if you'll permit me um, ne- nearing the end of the show here, I'm running a $25,000 contest called the Constitution of Consent Contest. Yeah, I was hoping you'd mention that. Um, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad because I, I, you know, I don't want to shamelessly self No, no, please do. I think yeah. you've got, there's they're really smart people out there, right? Um, but this contest, in, in this contest, I invite legal innovators to dream up a new constitution, okay? And it's a more cosmopolitan constitution. It's not just for Americans. So that's one of the, the wrinkles here. I offer guidelines, but I expect the contestants to innovate. You know, this is an invitation for subversive legal innovation. And I hope to find a lot of novelties in a lot novelty in those submissions. But I don't expect and this is where the nihilism comes in. I don't expect to march on Washington or London or Moscow with the winner of this contest and and wave it around and say it's time for implementation. Okay, there's there's not likely to be a constitutional moment. So it's really a thought experiment that gets people thinking about how a polycentric renaissance could start. And I really want to challenge the idea that law has to be the product of territorial conquest or accident of birth. I want to open people's minds to the idea of open source law. And that's what this this constitution of consent contest is designed to do. Now, it may sound doubly crazy coming from a guy who just moved to South Carolina, who's from North Carolina and talks like this and sound like he's basically pitching secessionism. (laughs) Um, um, But I kind of am like, I do think that, and uh, happily, this is also in the UN charter, the right of self-determination. It's just a much prettier way of putting it. I believe in a right of self-determination for peoples around the world. And and I and I base that not just in pragmatic grounds, but moral grounds. So I'm trying to get people to think about this new constitution and hopefully win a whole bunch of money by thinking about this and getting others to think about it, because it's it's potentially important and indeed liberating. And it allows us instead of fighting over what systems to shove down each other's throats will allow people to live next door to each other as neighbors in peace. At least that's my hope. But, you know, in the end, well, I I read a lot of political books uh, in part before interviewing folks. And I got to say, so much of what I read tends to be variations on those kind of themes that we talked about, kind of old, tired sort of things. And what I found so refreshing about your your 
whole approach is that it is very different and it challenged me to think differently. And yeah, there are some things I, I've read. I'm sure listeners will, when they pick up the book and I, I encourage them to do that, will say, oh my God, that's a crazy idea, but that, that's half the point, you know? And so uh, it just was a really refreshing, a, enjoyable read and the converse, this conversation has been as well. And so I just wanted to close by thanking you for, for taking the time to write the book and uh, come on the show and talk with me today. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. You had the best questions, I have to say. Oh, thanks and I, so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. That's it for this Politics Guys interview. Are you still there? Because if you are, that makes you an unusual, in a good way, I'd like to think, individual. Most people have stopped the podcast by now on to something else, I don't know. And But you're hanging in there. Maybe, I don't know, you're just curious what comes next. Maybe you're trapped underneath something heavy. I, I don't know what's going on in your life. I hope it's not trapped underneath something heavy. But I realized I put in this close at the end of every interview, every episode, and almost no one listens to it. I don't know if anyone listens to it for the interviews because they're just a pre-recorded thing. I just slap on there when I'm doing post-production, which is not to say they're not important. I mean, they're important to me, right? Because I'm pushing you to do stuff and give us money and tell people about us so we can be rich and powerful, famous podcasters or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, if you are still hanging in there right now, I just want to say thanks. Uh, unless, again, you're trapped underneath something heavy, in which case I hope it works out for you. But I also want to say thanks, of course, to our executive producers and their a great bunch. I say that, but I really mean it too, honestly, not just because they've been hanging in there for years, helping the show be what it is, hopefully for better. It's going to say for better or worse. And you've heard their names before, but I'm going to say them again. Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. Thank you all. If you guys are listening, I really appreciate that. And, you know, here I am. It's September 20th, as I'm recording this, and maybe I'm just going to talk for a while because no one's listening, right? Right? Are you there, God? It's me, Michael. I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, I got a lot on my mind. A lot's going on. I pulled a hamstring, I don't know, hamstring tendinopathy. Some, I, you know, never base your exercise routine on various YouTube videos. That's that free advice from someone who should know better. Uh, you know, I've known some pretty stupid PhDs in my time, and on some subjects, I'm one of them. Anyway, I got that going on, and one of our one of our dogs, Gus, has got this recurrent itchiness. We think it's seasonal allergies. We dose him up with Benadryl, and he, then he's just kind of dopey and allergy eyes. And we've given him baths, and oh, we, I see, we, my wife and I have helped basically, you know, uh, her, but in, in all kinds of stuff, uh, special dog shampoo and conditioner. And we did an actual, uh, she ground up oatmeal and we put them in my tub and that seemed to help a little bit. At least we're hoping that it did, but there's, there's that itchy Gus. And, you know, as some of you may know, we're, uh, getting ready to move to France. At least we think we're going to, most of the major details seem to be settled on, but of course there's tons of paperwork paperwork, bureaucracy, all that kind of stuff. And it's uh, honestly pretty overwhelming. I'm in my last semester at NKU and uh, between that and, and keeping up the podcast, I've, I've scheduled a ton of interviews. I, I always do that. They tend to hit a lot when book season comes out in the fall and or serious book season comes out in the fall. And then I find myself utterly, utterly swamped. And I can hear people with with kids saying, God, you don't know what swamped is, Mike. And you're, you're probably right. I don't. But in any case, it's all relative, right? What your expectations are compared to what your reality is, the distance between them, that's your uh, degree of suffering. That's kind of some sort of a Buddhist concept, I think, that I completely uh, just destroyed there in my strange translation. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now. But if you have been listening to this, uh, <laughs> I don't know. At this point, right, you have to have been trapped under something uh, heavy. But uh, if you want to just send a thought back to me about, you know, I don't know, dog itching remedies or m moving internationally or really anything, you can always just reach out, mike at politicsguys.com. That's the 
best way to get me probably. Or if you're not on the Discord, hey, why aren't you on the Discord? There's all kinds of good stuff going on there. Uh, you can do that if you're a supporter. And if you're listening to this, you probably are a supporter at this point or you're a super dedicated hate listener. I don't know. But if you're not a supporter, yes, think about becoming one. We are a small, very clearly off-the-cuff, amateurish sort of podcast. We aspire to great degrees of professionalism. We do what we can. But, you know, it's it's hard to do uh, when we all have day jobs and a limited budget. And I am not kidding when I say that there is no way we would have been doing this since 2016. 2016? I think 2016. It's been a long time. If listeners hadn't stepped up and given us the vast majority of the support we need to keep on going. So if you're one of those people, thank you. Thank you so very much. And if you're not, and if you do have the means to help us out, even a little bit, every little bit really does help where we're at. So check that out. I always put the support in various 38 ways you can support us in the show notes. It really does help. And again, if you can't support us financially, or even if you can, just you know, spreading the word to your followers or whatever, followers, friends, uh, frenemies on whatever social media you use, it really does help get the word out, uh, advertise for us. I find myself right at this point sort of getting into marketing cliches. And so I'm just going to shut up at this point, but just thanks very much. And yes, I will uh, either take a nap or seek some sort of help at this point. Take care. Bye.